Hi everyone. We hope you're enjoying Season 5 of Elixir Wizards. Before we get into today's show, we want to make a quick announcement. We're currently looking for an engineering manager to join our team. If you have expertise in React, Elixir, or Ruby, a track record of improving engineering processes, and a proficiency in the design, maintenance, and assessment of technical architecture, we'd love for you to apply. Our team is fully remote in the United States, and first-time managers are encouraged to apply. Head over to smartlogic.io slash jobs to learn more and submit your application. Thanks, and now here's the show. Hello, and welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justin Seepin, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my glorious co-host, Sunday Mint, and my unparalleled producer, Eric Ostrich. How are y'all doing? Good. How are you? Tops, thanks for asking, Sunday. This season's theme is adopting Elixir, and today we're joined by special guest Brian Howenstein. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great. How are you guys? I'm doing lovely. Thank you very much. Sunday's nodding her head like she's doing well. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget people can't see us. <laughs> <laughs> Eric's got an opening question for us. Uh, yeah. So, Brian, you work for something called uh, Cluster Truck. Do you want to tell us what that is? And I also have a follow-up of when are you gonna, going to deliver to the northwest side of Indy? <laughs> Great question. All right, so Cluster Truck, we are a vertically integrated delivery-only ghost kitchen, uh, to use what the hot term is these days. So um, we don't have any front of house. There's no actual restaurant you can go to. We are just food delivery, and we deliver all of our own food. So uh, we're not going to other restaurants and picking up their stuff. It is all made in our kitchens. Um, you use our apps to order. We have our, our own set of couriers who are making deliveries, and uh, everything comes through us. So when are we coming to the northwest side of Indy? Man, that's a great question. We are in the same boat. I think I'm the only one left on our engineering team who can't get a cluster truck delivered to their house. So I'm right in there with you, pulling for the same thing. Yeah, I keep seeing them pop up. There's one by my parent-in-laws and Fishers. There's one in Carmel that's like, six blocks away from where I live. And then there's the what original downtown and broad ripple or something. They just like everywhere except me. So <laughs> it is a priority. We are working on it. So I'm learning from my producer that I immediately mispronounced your name. It's Howenstein, not Howenstein. So Brian Howenstein, everyone <laughs> super glad to have you on Brian. Brian, we like to open with some, and we're going to get back to the cluster truck thing. I'm really curious what you meant when you said vertically integrated, but I'm going to follow up on that later because I'm curious just to learn a little bit about you, Brian, how you got into technology and the programming, what your training was like. I was really lucky. Yeah, I grew up with parents who were both very technically minded. So uh, my dad was an electrical engineer. My mom was a systems analyst for Purdue University and uh, always had computers around the house um, and people who were very familiar with them. So very early on growing up, we had computers in the house. So I think I first started learning how to program in roughly third grade. Um, so that was like 92, 93. Um, I was on the internet. I went with my mom to uh, up to Purdue University every weekend and got to got to play around on the internet, originally searching for SimCity cheat codes. That's what got me on there. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how I got started um, and just kind of got uh, addicted to it. So and then in, I think in fifth grade, a part of our school science fair, I set up my first web server. And then um, basically, uh, once I got to 
the high school, I took every every class I could get my hands on. So um, unfortunately, even back then, it, it wasn't a lot. I think I took our like computer applications class to start because that was what was required to do anything else. So just, you know, how do you use Microsoft Word? How do you use Microsoft Excel? All that fun stuff. And then that opened up and let me take C++. Uh, and then after that, I think senior year, I took, uh, uh, we had a two-period class a day that let us get our... Uh, Cisco certified networking associate um, kind of certificate. So I got my CCNA uh, in high school and then uh, and then headed off to college. So I had a pretty, pretty solid base of programming once I got to college and then uh, I majored in computer science and uh, minored in cognitive science and basically kept it going through the whole way. So started off self-taught, but I also definitely uh, had some formal training as well. I think that we have had a number of guests on the show this season who started programming officially under the age of 10 and it's like become so common at this point i almost want us to have like an elixir wizards competition (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty awesome um what's something that made you excited to continue doing it like you were doing it your whole life but sometimes people were like reject their childhood so like how did you decide you wanted to do this professionally I always liked building things and um what's kind of been the common theme through through my career is is really liking building things and almost the technology is really just the medium I'm using, not necessarily that I would get super excited um, about the programming specifically, but it's what I use to, to make the things that, that I like to make. So um, and I even maybe changed a little bit in college. I was originally just a very, I was very excited by the deep technical aspects of programming. And then um, I had an internship in college that kind of flipped the way I thought a little bit. And I got more excited about what the end result was rather than the technology itself that I was using. But I think it, in the end, it's it's just always been kind of a means to the end. It's it's what I use to to make things and, and make cool stuff. Can you talk a little bit more about the internship and kind of what that ter- turning point was like? Just get a little bit more specific. I'm curious what, what you mean by some of that. It's another one where I just got real lucky. I think I might have been in the right or just the right place at the right time. So because of my networking background, getting a CCNA in high school, and I took a lot of every networking class I could in college about network programming, I got an internship at Apple and um, I worked on the CoreOS networking team. So I was on the kernel networking team. And one of the the cool side kind of side things you get to do when you're in an internship at Apple, at least the time when I was there was that there was kind of a speaking series of the executives. So the internship program wasn't too huge back then. I think there were maybe um, 100 or 200 of us um, for a giant company like Apple. But that's a pretty small room to be in when you get to talk to people like Tim Cook and Steve Jobs is obviously still there and Johnny Ive. And really just hearing how they talked about the things that they built kind of flipped the things that I was excited about from being, you know, like, you know, the implementation details of what of what I was using to build to what the actual end product was that we were building for the customer. So Apple at the time was really making this uh, transition from um, selling features to selling, you know, kind of the end result and making your user better and making your user a better um, musician, making your user a better photographer, making your end user better rather than just worried about the actual, you know, features and the the technical things that we were building. So um, those definitely mattered, but it's um, what was most important was, was that kind of end product that came out at the end. That's really interesting to think about. That's not something that I've ever thought about using an Apple product, but thinking about growing up, having a MacBook maybe in the later half of my high school years, I did actually become a better photographer, a better music engineer when I was interested in that kind of stuff because those tools were so easy to use. And I can't say that I would have gotten anywhere without those tools 
being designed like that. So that's actually really interesting to think about. Was there anything else that they said that was very specific when you were kind of in the room with all these like notable names that, you know, our audience would love to hear like little tidbits? <laughs> um, I'd say one of, one of my favorite stories um, that I think kind of really emphasized it was uh, when when we got to talk to Johnny Ive, one of the questions that came up was somebody asked, you know, when he was designing that first iMac that kind of made the giant splash when when kind of Apple came back to, to prominence, um, everybody asked, always asked about the handle on the top because, you know, an iMac is not exactly a portable device. You know, it still probably weighs 40 to 50 pounds. Why is there a handle on the top? And he said, you know, it's not really about portability. What it's about is putting a place where people are not scared of technology and they want to touch it. Because when you have a handle, people are more more likely to feel comfortable actually touching it and interacting with the technology rather than being scared that they're going to mess something up or or have something that they're unfamiliar with. So it was kind of a really fascinating design angle that, you know, obviously it serves a purpose as you can carry this thing around, but that may not have been the full intention of um, it was for moving. It was to get and get that personal connection to technology that, you know, that would have been in 90 it was probably the late 90s, right around 2000. I can't remember exactly when that came out. But I mean, technology wasn't super personal at that point. Wow. That is so amazing. I'm so glad that we dug into this question because, first of all, I feel like we almost never hear about Apple on the show. Uh, so that, that's interesting. But also, most of the time today, I feel like when we hear about Apple and uh, especially like Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, it's not very flattering. But we, you know, we should remember that these dudes are literal geniuses who invented like some of the most amazing things of all time. It was definitely a very, it was a very cool time to be at Apple. I was there when the year that uh, they switched from PowerPC to Intel. And then my second summer I was there was the year that the iPhone was announced. So it was a very, very cool time to be there. Wow. Were you there the same summer the interns designed the emojis, like the first emoji set? Was I that don't around the same time? I believe so. I don't remember that. And it, if it was, they, they may have been at a different part of the the program that I was in. Mm, okay. I've always been interested in that big emoji <laughs> person over here. <laughs> so jumping into some Elixir, tell us about your path to Elixir land. How did you hear about Elixir? Where were you? When were you? Yeah. So Those I think I, I've taken probably, I guess, what's a pretty, tr I, I think it's a pretty common role path to Elixir. Um, I was originally a, a Rails developer. So um, I started using Rails very, I think, fairly early in the game. So I had to look back. I think it was around 2005 that I discovered Rails. I actually used it in college. My senior project was built in Rails. And I was a you know a Rails developer for a long time until I think I had to look back. Maybe 2016, I think, is when I first discovered Elixir through Phoenix through just one of those demos where you're looking at it and you're like, that is crazy. How are they doing that? And I had to try it. And um, it led to just a couple of little toy projects. And then after that, it was kind of off to the races. When you first used an Elixir project at Cluster Truck, was it like Cluster Truck was something that was already planning on using Elixir? Or when you were kind of getting into the weeds there, did you say Elixir is the move or I'm interested in looking into it? So it's kind of funny. It was it was a little bit of a side project that may became became mission critical. So um, what's kind of what's kind of cool about Cluster Truck is we're we're a very small team, and at the time we started playing with Elixir, um, the engineering team was was three people: the CTO um, and then two other engineers, including myself. So I was one of the one of the first uh, few engineers at Cluster Truck, and 
basically I, I saw this, I saw this cool new, new language and framework and um, I was just messing around with it. And we had a dashboard that had kind of been something that I built for myself just to kind of monitor some different parts of the system that all of a sudden everyone else in the company started noticing me like, uh, can you share that with me? Can I use that? And um, it just ran on my iPad. And one day, I think when I was working from home, the CEO was asking, hey, where's our dashboard? Because I had taken my iPad home and the dashboard wasn't running in the office. Um, so eventually that was just like a, a Ruby Sinatra app and was kind of starting to uh, get a little bit beyond what it was meant to do. So I was like, I, I think this would be a really interesting first first test for Elixir. So I bit, built a dashboard in Elixir that was not, it was not mission critical, but it was a, just a trial to get it out there. And then we started uh, kind of using it for more and more projects, especially once we kind of discovered how how powerful it was in terms of, uh, you know, websockets and channels was kind of our first foray into the the Phoenix world. And then it grew from there. That first project, was that something that only you worked on or did you start working on it and then bringing other people into it? It kind of it started just with me. But then after I kind of started showing it to, to other folks and they saw how cool it was, then others started started joining in. So I think um, I think pretty much every engineer in our team now has has worked on an Elixir project who uh, I don't think ever, anybody had an Elixir experience prior, prior to Cluster Truck. And I'd like to say everyone has, has had a, a good experience and enjoys it quite a bit. So I, I think it's been definitely a great move. Can you talk about the evolution of Elixir at Cluster Truck from that point? Obviously, they liked the end result of having a dashboard and they let you kind of build the, the, the second version of it in Elixir. But uh, how did it go from there? What were the conversations like? Yeah, I think it, it kind of evolved from the different problems that we were just facing at the time. So I, I had to do a quick count of, uh, um, you know, even for just uh, having a small engineering team, there are six of us right now, including myself, the CTO, our, our data scientists, and then three other engineers. That's our that's our pretty much our entire engineering team. We have 20 plus code bases and services that run Cluster Truck, and I think eight-ish of them are Elixir. As one new problem has has arisen, we've we've kind of decided what the best tool for the job was, and Elixir's um, been one we reached for quite a bit. So we've gone from dashboarding to we needed the ability to show real time messaging on our sites as things happened. So um, in the early days, uh, you know, we're a very hyper local delivery service. We have kind of a very tight delivery radiuses just based on the the promises that we um, give our customers. So we're very sensitive to things like uh, weather or street closures. And we needed a way to kind of in real time show messages to our customers. And that became a very great first use of just using uh, using WebSockets and channels that would link up to our website and be able to show those things. So that was kind of the first move into Elixir. And then we have a uh, we have couriers that are constantly delivering and moving around and we track locations in order to show order status and ran, run our system. And the way they would update their, uh, you know, GPS locations to us in our Rails project um, was very not performant at all. I think at one point that endpoint was taking about a second to do all its processing for every single location ping. And I uh, said, so this, this could definitely be done differently. So um, we ended up moving that into what we call our real-time system, which is a, a project in, in Phoenix that, uh, you know, it went from one second down to, uh, I think, 500 microseconds. So we had a very large speed up in processing and we were able to do uh, a lot more things a lot faster. So we kind of moved from that not mission critical um, phase to things that were more and more and more mission critical. Um, as we got more familiar with Elixir, we got more comfortable with it and we were able to kind of really understand what, what we were able to do with it. 
Can you speak a little, like just jumping back to Cluster Truck specifically, can you speak a little to where the idea for the company came from? Just you sitting around one day and wanted food? <laughs> so um, the idea kind of came um, from our CEO. So our CEO has a, has a really fascinating background. Um, he was originally, he founded a company called Exact Target. If you're in the marketing world at all, you've probably heard of it. Email marketing around the early 2000s eventually was bought by Salesforce for two and a half billion dollars and is now the Salesforce marketing cloud. So um, he had a big technology background and um, kind of after that happened, he went and he started a sustainable farm. So grass fed beef, pigs, pasture chickens, all, all that kind of stuff. And through doing that, he he tells a story that when he sells his his animals, he his steaks on his cows would go really quickly, but he'd always have a lot of hamburger left over. So he opened a small hamburger stand in his uh, hometown. In doing that, he kind of started you know, DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats started uh, approaching him of, you know, we'd like to deliver out of your restaurant. And he started using delivery through, through third parties and realized that the system was was really broken. It, um, you know, the, the restaurants don't make any money, the drivers don't make any money. And obviously, the, uh, the delivery services themselves aren't necessarily making any money, they're still losing money on on most deliveries. So um, this whole system is broken. So he kind of thought about there's there's got to be a much better way to do this and freshness was a big priority. So like if you uh say if you if you press if you place an order for a third party delivery system right now, they're going to start cooking that order as soon as they get the order. Um but your driver may not be there for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. So that is going to sit and it's going to get old really quickly. And we realized that the secret to getting fresh food to people is is managing time and knowing where our drivers are at all times. So basically the the mission statement to start building the first version of cluster truck is just don't cook the food until we know where your where your driver is. And then at that point um it kind of took on its own its its life of its own and um it's evolved quite a bit past that but that was kind of the initial marching orders. There were some other things that we learned along the way about variety is a really important thing. So instead of, you know, deciding ahead of time that which restaurant you need to order from. What's great about Cluster Truck is we cook almost every type of food in our own kitchen. So from pizza to pad thai to salads to burgers to chicken sandwiches to to cakes to cookies, all that stuff is coming out of one kitchen in one place. So if uh, you're ordering with a with a group of people, which most food orders are a social experience, people eating together, you're not having to decide on one restaurant at a time. You can just decide to eat Cluster Truck, and uh, you can all get your what you want from the from the same place. So that was a kind of a, a thing that, that he discovered from having uh, teenagers in his house is there were there was pizza coming to his house almost every single night and he didn't want to eat pizza every night. So wouldn't it be great so that his kids could get pizza and he could get pad thai or a salad or, or something else. So um, that was another really interesting insight that, that led to where kind of cluster truck is today. Wow. Is that true that most orders are for multiple people? Quite a bit. So we have very... I'd say very few orders that's just going to be like a single thing on it. You know, you think uh, there's a lot of orders that, you know, whether it's two people, three people, or maybe even a small family, yeah. you know, there's going to be different people on there and they don't necessarily want to eat all the same thing all the time. So um, we solved that problem really well. And kind of going along with that, we solve office lunches very well and we do very well in offices. And that's kind of an interesting thing that's happened with COVID, but, um, but offices are, are a very tough problem that we're able to solve. This is kind of getting into the vertical integration thing that we mentioned at the very beginning. And we were talking about Apple in the beginning, which is sort of the best known <laughs> vertically integrated company in the world. I'm curious, is that sort of how you view yourself? Do you view yourself as trying to be like the Apple of food delivery? Maybe not intentionally, but we've kind of accidentally stumbled that direction. 
I think one of our investors has once told us that, that we're very Apple-like in our thinking. And I don't know if that's just unconscious from from my background or, or whatever, but uh, we definitely try and think of, you know, what's the best possible end user experience we can have. And we can we can really provide that by controlling the whole process from from top to bottom. Can you describe what being a vertically integrated company means? You think in a traditional food delivery or third-party delivery through DoorDash or Uber Eats, there, there's the restaurant, there's the delivery driver, and then there's the actual food delivery company themselves. Those are all three different entities that all have, you know, somewhat competing interests. So, you know, each one wants to maximize its revenue and there may not really be that much revenue in a food delivery order to make uh, it worthwhile for everyone to to make that delivery. So vertical integration really makes it possible to not only have a sustainable business model, but we can deliver really quickly, really high quality food and kind of do things that other delivery services can't. So, you know, if our average delivery times are around 30 minutes and your food and even at that point is usually less than six minutes old, um, those are things that other people can't do. And we can do that because we have every piece of the system is is a, kind of under our control. So... Circling back to kind of how you integrated Elixir um, into this, when you were kind of scaling the company up and you had all these great ideas and you were doing all of this, how how did you bring people in to to learn Elixir or were they Elixir engineers already? How did you go about training them and kind of things along those lines? So I don't think nobody that joined the company had used Elixir before. It was, uh, I think everybody pretty much learned uh, on the job. And a lot of it was just, um, I guess, starting starting to play with it, see how it worked, maybe do uh, a little trial project on their own, and then um, and then just jumping into it. So there wasn't a lot of formal training. Being a small company, we we didn't have too many junior folks. It was mostly senior engineers. So we tend to hire generalists, especially being a small startup. You have to wear a lot of hats. So most of our team is pretty familiar with working with multiple languages and multiple paradigms. So they were able to to pick it up pretty quickly. Having the, you know, similar syntax to to Ruby is one help, but you know, the the paradigms are all different being a, you know, functional language versus object oriented, but it's something that, that everyone's able to pick up fairly quickly and has enjoyed as we move forward with it. I want to know one more thing, which is primarily around from your own experience learning Elixir and now from your experience of spinning people up on Elixir, are there any particular stumbling blocks that you run over time and time again? Or what are sort of the earliest hurdles that people need to jump over in order to become productive in Elixir? I think it, it kind of depends on maybe where you come from a little bit, but especially if you come from the Rails world, I think that big shift from thinking about things in an object-oriented way to a more functional way can be the biggest stumbling block. And also there's what's great about just is, you know, Elixir and Phoenix is there's no magic in that, you know, everything's a function and there's, you're, you're not going to be wondering, you know, where the heck did this, this magic variable come from? It's um, you know, there's, there's not things that, that trip you up so much that way. It's, it's really easy to kind of unwind and figure out where, where things are happening. But um, I think that pivot just from, from the object-oriented side to the functional side takes a little bit to get your head wrapped around it. And, uh, you know, some days if you're working on Rails and Phoenix at the same time, you can confuse yourself pretty quickly. But um, if I ever get some time to go heads down and work in in, uh, in Elixir for a while, I, I really enjoy it. I am team no magic. So yeah. super excited <laughs> to hear you say that. Um, when you're kind of hanging out with your Ruby friends or, you know, friends who are in other technologies, how do you 
maybe brag about Elixir? What's your, like your fun, your pitch when you're trying to convert <laughs> them over? Because we, we all do this and everyone has a different way of doing it. <laughs> I would say it just works, which is one of the great things is there are things that we have that have been running in Elixir that often we just forget about. And they just run on their own for so long just because of how fault tolerant it is. And if you follow the, uh, you know, if the if you follow kind of the accepted patterns, like it's you you launch it and it just kind of keeps going. We have a um, we call it Teams app that is a basically a Slack app that you can order cluster truck using Slack. And um, we haven't had to make an update to it in probably a year. Um, we have some other things like we have a small nerves project that runs in our kitchens that just like it has not had to been changed i think since we since we launched it into the into our kitchens it's just um it's very consistent and it's it's super fault tolerant and it's very 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 fast i always like saying it just doesn't fail it's not necessarily (laughs) true but i love just throwing that one out there so that's really cool how did you kind of rise up and become the vp of product at cluster truck yeah so that was kind of a little bit of that I think that transition from what we talked about earlier, where where my interests land a little bit more on the the product side, and I you know my engineering um, skills more kind of the the means to the end. But so I was, I was one of the original um, you know few engineers, but then um, as our team grew, we had more and more need for um, someone to kind of uh, step over to the product side and look about where we're going and um, what's the most important to work on and what are, how are we going to tackle some of the problems that we need to to tackle. So. I moved into a, a head of product role. And then uh, as time went on, I moved up to, to VP of product. So I enjoyed it quite a bit. And it's kind of cool that um, I'm more of a technically minded product manager. So being able to understand kind of what the lift is and things that we're building and understand how the actual systems work, I think has been been very helpful and handy. Can you dive a little bit more actually into this role and especially around this role transition? Because I think there's probably a lot of people in engineering, either with some product experience in their background, maybe on the design side, maybe on the product management side, who would love to be able to make that same exact jump. So if you could talk a little bit about like, what does a VP of product do that like a VP of engineering probably wouldn't be doing and kind of how to make that kind of transition? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely I think it's a lot easier of a transition to make in a small company. I don't know how I would give advice to make that jump in a in a larger company with more established roles, but I think my focus definitely changed to you know, my responsibility is the roadmap and where we're going and what's most important to work on next and what exactly the boundaries are of the things we're going to tackle. So, my experience with or my interest on the product side is very you know, my, my interests in, I say, how my focus shifted when I learned the things that I did at Apple were very useful, as well as um, I had some business experience on my own. Before I joined Cluster Truck, I also had a, I owned two strength conditioning facilities, kind of like CrossFit gyms. And um, so I had a business experience as well that also led me to be able to prioritize a little bit and what's thinking that little bit higher role and what's most important to the business, even though they're, you know, things that we want to do on the engineering side, what's going to move those metrics that make us succeed on the business side and, and what's most important to do next. That is dope. I, I'm, I'm like pretty pumped to hear that you used to own CrossFit <laughs> style gyms. That's just a cool thing. You don't see a lot of people in tech who are from that world. And Interesting period, but uh, my side hobby is I, I compete in the Scottish Highland Games. So I have a kind of a, a slightly different um, I think characteristic than a lot of engineers, but I really enjoy strength sports and the, the Scottish Highland, the, the Scottish, Scottish Highland what? Games. If you've never heard of this, so 
I have if you Please Google Scottish Highland games, you're going to come across some interesting things, but it's basically, uh, an old it's, it's, I guess the original version of track and field where, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old, but, um, a lot of the, the, uh, track and field events like shot put and hammer throw came from the Scottish Highland game. So we, uh, we basically throw rocks in a field. We throw very heavy weights. Um, we flip a telephone pole that's uh, called a caber and, uh, we, we basically throw, throw quite a few things. So, um, I love strength sports. I love kind of weird and, and not mainstream things. And, um, it's a, it's a fun hobby. And as a side note, I have a side project built in Elixir in Phoenix. That's kind of our sports scoreboard, um, that has all the results for Highland games in North America and kind of keeps statistics and, and track those, uh, um, for everyone who's competed. So that's a, another fun Elixir project. Yeah, I'm sorry. We are going to completely digress here because this is this is like ridiculously important. First of all, um, talk, can, can you talk about that project? And and second, can you talk? Do you, do you follow like the uh, the world's strongest man Absolutely. stuff? And, and you know about the the, the whole controversy with uh, uh, the mountain thinking that he was cheated out of the win. And do you have a take on all that? If you could even maybe synopsis that for the audience, because I'm sure they have no idea. Most people probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But this is the this is a fascinating piece of like. Sports lore that just happened in the last couple of years so sure so uh yeah i, f- I follow strongman a little bit um so in my in my life of uh uh having the the strength conditioning gyms uh yeah i've, I've done a, a couple of strongman shows uh i compete the scottish highland games and i, I followed a little bit um but yeah between the mountain and eddie hall there was some uh controversy about who won i think some events I think some uh, some words were said over Twitter in various uh, various arenas, and now I believe there's a boxing match set up between uh, the Mountain and Eddie Hall. So um, I don't know what this boxing match is going to look like if two, you know, the, basically the largest men on the planet who are you know six, eight, five hundred some pounds of just pure muscle. They're just absolutely huge. I, I, These people are monstrous. <laughs> I mean, these are the Nephilim we're talking about here. They are not normal people. Even the Scottish Highland Games, I'm I'm six foot tall, you know, 275 pounds. And I am usually the smallest man on the field. And uh, these world's strongest man competitors dwarf everybody who compete in the Scottish Highland Games. It's there. It's truly a spectacle. Okay. Yeah, I would love to. Okay. I'm going to definitely look up the Scottish Highland Games. That sounds amazing. Son, do you have any follow up on this? I, I, I feel like we can. Yeah, just one. Just one. I really would like to know. So I'm also, so I'm a figure skater, so I get like the weird, like off the beaten path kind of sports that require a lot of dedication, but um, <laughs> I also have never aspired to own an ice rink. So how did you become a gym owner? That was a fun, uh, yeah, a fun progression. So before I worked at Cluster Truck, I worked for a consulting company here in Indianapolis that um, basically works out of a large warehouse. Uh it's it's kind of is this developer town? Is developer town. So what's fun about developer town is developer town. It's a giant old warehouse, and all the offices are what look like tiny little mini barns on wheels, and those are the offices. So they're tiny houses in this warehouse, and it's it's a town of developers. Is why it's called developer town. But they're on wheels. You can move all the houses around. Um, they'd move them around kind of once a quarter as people worked on different projects. They'd circle everyone up who's kind of on the same project. They had whiteboards on the outside. Um, it had a little porch light so that you could turn it on if you were in kind of do not disturb mode where you were heads down and didn't want anybody to to bother you. But on the side of this warehouse was just this big empty space. It was the old loading dock and it was unused. And uh, they were kind of trying to decide what to do with it. And at the time I had been um, kind of coaching at a uh, another strength and conditioning facility kind of before Highland Games and 
uh, and kind of strongman stuff. I'm also, I, I do quite a bit of Olympic weightlifting. That was kind of my specialty. And I kind of talked to the guy who owned the, uh, the gym I went to and said, Hey, this would be a really great second location for you. Um, do you want to partner up? And so we, uh, became business partners. We opened a second location in Broderpool inside the developer town space and the old loading dock. And, uh, and so I kind of stumbled into the, the gym ownership world. Wow, man, I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation. I really hope I get to visit you sometime. <laughs> we can like work out or something. But I'm, I would love for you because you've got all this experience uh, now at Cluster Truck, but previously over at Developer Town and at the gym. And so you're probably really tied into a lot of businesses that are dealing with COVID in a lot of different ways. So I'm just curious, like, how has business affected you all at Cluster Truck? And if you have a you know broader knowledge from your experience, maybe talk about that too. Yeah, it's been it's been really fascinating, especially on the delivery side. I think everybody uh, this time last year, or you know, I guess about a month later in in March, once COVID really started to hit the United States, nobody really knew what was going to happen. There was a lot of um, you know a lot of uncertainty, and um, especially when things uh, you know when things first started, and there was a lot of hesitancy. I think around even ordering uh, food delivery as as all the kind of the lockdown and stay at home orders started happening. You know, is this safe? Is this a good thing to do? And so, uh, but even, you know, once that happened, you know, a lot of traditional restaurants had to stay closed, but we don't deliver traditional restaurant food. We're not going into another restaurant to um, pick up their food and deliver to your house. We have our own ghost kitchens that customers are not coming into. Our couriers don't actually even come into them. We're a, uh, we're a curbside delivery service. So our couriers pull up to our kitchen, we hand them an order, they drive to the customer's house, the customer meets them at the curb, and then they come back to our kitchen. So um, in terms of the delivery world, we're probably one of the safer delivery options. As kind of COVID progressed, um, and delivery really picked up, you know, DoorDash and you know, and Uber Eats are really having record record years with that as deliveries really become a mainstream part of our culture. Um, deliveries really picked up for us as well, even though, you know, traditional restaurants are, are really struggling or they've really shifted towards delivery. We've things have been going, you know, thankfully, thankfully, very, very well for us. We have seen a, quite a bit of shift between, uh, you know, when we first pre-COVID, we supplied um, offices and people working in offices quite a bit just because we solved that problem really well of people wanting to eat together uh, with uh, things like group ordering. We were able to offer group ordering where everyone can pay separately, which is a pretty nice feature, um, as well as, as have a single person cover the order and everyone gets what they want. It all comes together. And so we, we solved that problem for offices. So we saw kind of a big shift from as people went to the offices to go to uh, work from their homes, we saw a, a really big shift from um, those lunchtime orders to, to people ordering at home. But, um, you know, through this whole thing, we've been very fortunate that delivery as a whole has picked up and we've been able to do very well throughout it. Kind of a wild future question for you. Got this idea from a TV show, currently watching. When the world opens back up, do you think you would consider opening a physical restaurant that allows you to have deliveries from different places where so you don't actually have a kitchen there, but people can eat together what they want from different places? Or is that a crazy idea? I don't know about us doing that. One of the nice things is that, at least in our model, we think we can provide that service of instead of getting lots of different delivery services, we all that same thing can come from our from our location. But we actually do provide food for a lot of places that don't have kitchens themselves. So um, things like breweries, um, we actually do quite a bit of business too. So if people are at a brewery um, and it's a really great deal for the brewery too, because if people are able to eat and, and hang out, they'll stay longer and they can, you know, obviously drink more and the brewery makes, makes, uh, um, does better themselves. So we have a lot of partnerships with breweries where we'll be their kind of their delivery partner and people will order cluster truck food. will come to, uh, come to the brewery and, and bring food to you and kind of solve that 
it's kind of a win-win situation for both of us. But yeah, that's interesting. I'm not not sure about the uh, having multiple the place where just delivery stuff comes to. But that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, the TV show was marketing it as like this wild idea from this like tech startup in Silicon Valley sort of situation. So, and I was just thinking. It's not the wildest idea I've ever heard. Why are they treating it that way? In the, but you know, TV is TV, right? I, th- I think they did this in the '90s in the middle of every mall in America, and they're called. Yeah, food <laughs> that's funny. A lot of times when we when we try and describe ourselves, we describe ourselves as a virtual food hall. So I definitely, uh, I, I get that get that need. Just funny because food halls are still cool and food courts aren't. <laughs> There's only like one difference. I don't know. I've heard that food courts are the only part of the mall that is still like a thriving or thriving-ish business because um, obviously malls aren't doing too hot. I'm curious if you are using nerves at all at Cluster Truck. We are. So we have one nerves project right now. Um, so – one cool thing because we're on so again, we're vertically integrated and we know we, we keep a lot of data about what's happening with our system, what's going on. Um, we have a live labor tracker in our kitchens that lets our managers be able to track, um, you know, the, the amount of hours being worked and being, um, and basically being spent in our kitchens versus the, the amount of sales coming in to be able to, to manage their labor numbers um, more effectively. So that's, that's a huge thing in the restaurant industry is you have to, because it is a pretty low margin business, you have to be very, um, very conscious about your costs and kind of um, make sure you're not over overspending when you don't need to. So we have a uh, basically a raspberry Pi that's uh, has a seven inch touchscreen on it and it's uh, it's in the kitchen. It can, um, it can show a few different, few different displays but it uh it's just in there and shows live labor numbers throughout the day um to our to our general managers so that's a that's a little nerves device that that runs in there that was a really interesting thing to to play with and you know first kind of embedded um software device that i really got to develop for so that was that was a lot of fun and for other future work that you might be considering have you guys talked about having an open api for other folks who are looking into getting into the same space so it's interesting we've we have kind of kicked that idea around is, you know, do we become a software platform that other people can launch virtual, you know, kind of ghost kitchens on, or do we just um, uh, continue doing this ourselves? And it's, it's funny. There's a, there's a tweet that was out there by a, a parody VC Twitter account startup L Jackson that said, uh, you know, everybody wants to be Grubhub. Nobody wants to be Domino's. And I think we really kind of made that decision that, um, you know, the vertical integration means we have to control the food as well as the technology. So we're, I think we're really focused on uh, we're going to provide it end to end, not necessarily, you know, sell software out to other companies to, to do something similar. Well, the other side of that question would be, what about an open API for people to order, like create new kinds of food ordering interfaces where the food comes from cluster truck? That's actually really that's really interesting. I would uh, I'd love if anybody has an ideas for for what they would want to build in an OP, open API. I'd be uh, really interested to 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 talk to them. Just gonna hack the system to uh, extend your delivery range. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, yep. it's funny. We have a we have a fairly significant number of people who will. Um, drive to a place in our delivery zone and meet one of our couriers like in a parking lot which is not uh, you know not suspicious at all handing a paper bag bag between cars in a parking lot somewhere um but we <laughs> we have a a, a a not insignificant number of people that do that so i'm actually really glad to hear that because there's a cookie delivery in my area that 
they're i'm outside the delivery range by like two streets and i've considered putting an address that wasn't mine just standing there for it but i was like <laughs> people in my neighborhood would not be cool with that <laughs> no we we absolutely have people doing that and uh since you know i'm one of the people who stuck outside the delivery zone i may have done that uh, a time or two as well yeah, we used to go downtown to the uh orchestra and afterwards set it up so that when that when the show finished there would be someone waiting outside with our mac and cheese. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of cool. We we do pretty well with scheduled orders. So if you say uh, I want it here at six o'clock, it's a uh, it's a very high percentage chance it's going to be there at six o'clock. So that's awesome. So going back real quick, just to kind of finish the thread on adopting Elixir and people who are looking to get into Elixir or looking to work at a company that are um, that uses Elixir. What advice would you get some give to somebody who is either starting an elixir and maybe doesn't know where to start or is trying is is interested in elixir knows a little bit but is trying to get it brought into their company? I tend to be one of the uh ask forgiveness rather than permission kind of people. Um so at least that's that's what I've done so far where um you know, even if it's not something, obviously you probably don't want to toss something mission critical into the the works real quick, but starting a uh you know, a, a small side project or a piece or a kind of a proof of concept that you can, uh, you know, you can show someone and say, you know, here's, here's something I built. Um, and you know, what's great about Elixir is that it's not a completely unproven technology. It has Erlang underneath and the Erlang VM, which, you know, has 20 or 30 years of engineering underneath it and, and rock solid testing. So, um, it's not a completely un, unproven technology. So build something small and build, you know, maybe something that's, uh, you know, not, that if, if things don't go, don't go well, it's not going to bring the company down, um, show it to people and, and, and get that out there first. And I think you'll find once, once you get that success out there, uh, uh, more things will come. Another example of something we did was, uh, this year when, when COVID hit, um, obviously Indianapolis were very famous for something called the Indianapolis 500 and that was delayed this year. So, um, we built something called the, uh, the cluster 500, which was basically a scoreboard of our, uh, of our drivers that people could watch throughout the day and see how many, uh, basically laps or deliveries they took in their average delivery time. And it was a scoreboard that updated live throughout the day through live view. So it was a really fun proof of concept that was not mission critical, but it was obviously a really fun thing to build and something that you could get out there is just, you know, here's what this thing can do and here's, uh, test it out. We haven't heard too many people say that they're using LiveView for anything. How is that going? So we actually use LiveView for a few things. Um, so that uh, that dash or that cluster five hundred project was written in LiveView. That would have been um, obviously in May twenty twenty is when that went out, and we built that actually in a s less than twenty four hours from the idea. One of our um, our customer service manager had this. Hey, wouldn't this be cool? And uh, um, you know, basically a put that out in Slack. And I think two of us on the team were like, eh, hold please. And uh 24 hour later we come back and uh, we had this thing built. So it was a, uh, it was really cool and it was a really, really fun thing to build. Um, so we use, we use live view for that. We have an internal inventory tracking system that uh, our kitchens use to, to manage their inventory from, you know, the actual food products that come in the door. That's um, that's a Phoenix project that's, that uses live view. And then, um, we have two locations, uh, one in Indianapolis and Fishers and one in Columbus, Ohio, and a suburb called Dublin that are actually inside of a Kroger store. Um, so, and we have a uh, pickup available there in our pickup dashboards that um, let people know what their order status is, our um, 
are written in live view. So kind of have a few projects out there that are, that are live view. And that's kind of the fun thing about being a small team where you get pretty free reign control over what technologies you use is you get to try out the new things pretty quickly. Um, kind of just one of our team philosophies is you can bring something new, bring something um, different in. Um, you just got to be prepared to support it once, uh, once you put it out there. So that's a, that's a really fun uh, kind of freedom and uh, thing we can do on our team. That's really awesome. What's your general impression of LiveView uh, after using it for the first time? I really like it. I think it's it's another one of just those cool level ups that, you know, I think channels was a big thing on Phoenix that was just kind of a really differentiating thing uh, amongst web frameworks. LiveView is just that next iteration, just a, another kind of quantum loop. And I think um, something very similar has now come to rails with the uh, the hotwire kind of stuff where um, I think that's that's kind of coming along. So I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I know our our one engineer who has been who's built kind of our entire inventory system in LiveView may have uh, his own opinions on it. Some things are I think he's had some frustrations with, but I think some other things have been really have gone really well. So uh, it's been an overall I think a a pretty good thing. I think we each have one more question before we give you time for plugs. I want to know about the future of Cluster Truck. How do you like? How much more space is there to innovate in terms of food delivery? Do you have any plans of doing food? Uh, production, meaning like agriculture, urban farming, vertical farming, obviously that would be like being completely, completely vertical. Yeah. So I think, I think there's still a long ways to go in food delivery. Um, I think we're in the early stages. I think that there is uh, not only is there is additional functionality to come, but I think there's additional efficiency to come. I think the entire food delivery market, at least from a delivery fee standpoint, is going to be a race to the bottom where um, free is just going to be where it's at, free delivery. And um, if you're not building a model and the technology today to support free delivery, I don't think you're going to have a good time. So um, that's how we basically architected Elixir, or sorry, uh, Cluster Truck, uh, using all of our different technologies is that we support free delivery. We are we have no delivery fees at all other than just tipping your driver. Um, and we're able to build a sustainable business with that. And uh, we kind of made that a, a core priority at the beginning. But yeah, in, in terms of uh, functionality, I think there's still a lot of stuff um, to be done and, you know, we'll plug it at the end. But our team is uh, is definitely hiring to uh, to continue on that mission. So no CSA, no cluster truck CSA in the near future. Well, so it's funny, uh, you know, going back to our CEO owning a sustainable farm, one of uh, his, I guess you could say, selfish reasons for launching cluster truck is to be another consumer of his uh, his grass fed beef. Um, unfortunately, as we've as we've scaled, we've outgrown his ability to produce a little bit. But uh you know, there's never, never say never. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, we're also pretty curious. Do you have a favorite and least favorite thing from your own menu? That is a great question. And um, I'd say I, I do have a favorite. I think I, uh, uh, our lazy breakfast burrito is not only my favorite, but probably the favorite of quite a few people who use cluster truck. So um, it's always way up there at the top of our most frequently ordered things. Um uh, we have a Nashville hot chicken sandwich that's also is pretty amazing. And uh, we have lots of things that we can deliver that you don't traditionally have as really great delivery food. Uh, you know, we deliver things like uh, burgers and fries that are still crispy and hot when it gets to you. And um, those are, are things that are always really nice to get. I feel like we have to, uh, in the Indie Hackers uh, Slack channel, there's always, uh, Mitch is always going on and on about the Buffalo Chicken Mac. <laughs> 
Yes, that's another great one. So we have buffalo chicken mac and cheese. Those are cult favorites. Um, and that's the thing about our menu is, uh, or one of the great things uh, about our customers is they uh, they definitely have their opinions and they're not afraid to let you know. I like to say that uh, our customers love to very to care very loudly at us um, in a loving way, where they'll let us know um, what their favorite things are, and if we uh, uh, if we take away an item that they were that was one of their favorites, we'll we'll know about it pretty quickly. But buffalo chicken mac and cheese is is definitely one of those um, that people love to get. And for your least favorite one, we had a a bunch of like sub sandwiches on there for a while that it's like yeah, it was good enough, but it's. Um, what are what we do really well is we deliver food that's not traditionally delivered well, and those are the things I really like to get from from Cluster Trek. I thought it would be something fun, like um, something that everyone loves that you just like happen to hate. We do like a hot take food food take Friday kind of thing here at Smart Logic, so that's always fun to hear what people like and don't like. I will say I was very angry. My one of my favorite things that got pulled off the menu. We used to have a green curry that was absolutely amazing. That unfortunately is not on the menu anymore. Um, I think I, I was very I complained very loudly when that one came off the menu. Uh, we also had a we had a short stint where we had hot dogs on the menu, gourmet hot dogs, which is kind of a, a funny one. Just some some really off the wall things. Um, but it's a uh, yeah we've we've had we've had quite a few different genres of food and. Um, what's what's great is we have our i mean we have an actual executive chef who who comes up with our recipes and um on food testing day is always a very popular day at cluster truck when everyone gets to come in and test all the new menu items i can say i I, um also really liked new menu day when i worked at kava people would come in and uh or the chefs would come in kind of work out some new new ideas and they might not have ever made it to the menu the chefs could could have just been having fun but that was always Really an interesting experience. Very eye-opening. <laughs> you could have just trolled the whole internet and said you don't like chicken tenders. <laughs> anyway, uh, this has been a tremendous interview, Brian. We could go on a lot longer, but we are out of time. I want to give you a few minutes to plug anything you want. Shamelessly self-promote. Ask the audience to find you online. Anything you want to say, you can say it now. The floor is yours. Awesome. Yeah. If you want to know more about Cluster Truck, obviously clustertruck.com, Google us. There's been lots of news stories out there talking about us um, with our, you can see videos of our CEO um, uh, on TV or, or being interviewed. Clustertruck.com, um, social, Twitter, uh, you can find us at Cluster Truck. Um, me personally, um, you find me on Twitter, HWRD. And then um, if you're interested in uh, my my sport of the Scottish Highland Games, you can find my site at cabermetrics.com. So if you've ever been a fan of a baseball statistics, sabermetrics, it's a bit of a pun on sabermetrics, caber being from the Scottish Highland Games. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This has been absolutely wonderful. Hey, thank you for joining us on Elixir Wizards. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview with you. It's a brief segment where we showcase somebody from the community that's working at a company using Elixir in production, and we'll learn about how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to our new mini feature segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Sunday Mint, and today we're speaking with Michelle Mori, software engineer at FuturePet. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Can you tell us where you're calling in from today? I am just in Vancouver, BC, so in Canada. Awesome, awesome. We love to see that Elixir is all over the globe. We're here for it. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) 
Can you let us know what your background in programming is like and how you got into Elixir? I started out um, after college doing games programming um, with like, yeah, C Sharp and C++ and then moved into web development and learned uh, JavaScript on my own in my spare time. And then in just in my current position now, I've gotten started with Elixir. So it was like the first time I ever heard of it and learned it on the job. Yeah. And continuing to learn as well. That's awesome. So how long has that been so far? A year now doing Elixir. Yeah. That's super awesome. Um, It's always interesting to hear people when they when they join a company and then they start learning Elixir. What were some onboarding tactics that you guys did? It was a bit kind of uh, like really practical. So I just got started with some really easy tickets. Uh, I got taken through the project, shown where like everything lived in an Elixir project, which looked super alien to me on the first day, but then got like uh, a really simple problem to try and fix where they showed me examples of how it was done before in different areas. And then, yeah, just kind of kept building up from that. Um, and working with like, yeah, the code reviews and people giving me suggestions and reading the docs. And over time, it's just gotten easier and easier. So it wasn't too bad. Yeah, that's awesome. And we'll probably circle back to that in a little bit. But we want to give our listeners an idea of what your company does. Can you give us the quick elevator pitch? Uh, Yeah, so GoFetch is basic a loyalty rewards program for going to the vet. So every time you take your pet in for a visit, you get 5% back on anything you've spent that day, which you can then go and spend um, on like future visits. And in addition to that, you also get like 24-7 vet support where you can like quickly ask questions on the app and get like advice from vet professionals on what you should do next. 24-7 vet support is like the greatest thing because when your cat swallows string, it always happens at the most inopportune time. (laughs) So that's great. How is Elixir used it? Um, Is it, sorry, is it Future Pet or GoFetch? Uh, Future Pet's the company, but GoFetch is the uh, product. Awesome. So how is Elixir used there? We use it for our customer-facing app. So we have uh, a React front end with Elixir in the back end, and then that's also used for like our internal management and everything like that as well. Nice. So uh, can you speak a little to uh, why it's uh, Elixir backend front end or React front end uh, setup? Was there other setups that you guys considered? Well, that was decided before I started with the company. But from what I've heard, it was just that the developers thought Elixir was a really cool language and wanted to get started with it. And like everyone was in agreement with it. So it was just what was decided. Nice. And so when you're hiring in a, um, for your project, uh, you are you hiring for Elixir or are you hiring for engineers who can learn Elixir? Uh, yeah. So speaking from like my own experience with getting hired, um, I think we're mostly looking for people who can learn Elixir, um, mostly because I don't think it's like the most common thing to be able to find lots of Elixir devs um, for like such a specific position. But as long as you're like looking for someone who is able to pick up a language, who's already familiar with like other programming languages, it's not too hard to pick up Elixir, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen the same thing here. Are there any challenges when you're hiring for Elixir? I suppose probably just that you need to find someone that's willing to pick up something new and 
also wants to and not just like stick to the same languages that they already have experience in. Yeah, nice. Um, and you touched on this a little bit, but when you were onboarding, were there, were there any resources that you found very helpful or was it mostly uh, pair programming? I personally have like mostly just been looking at all the Elixir docs and everything. And I found them like completely sufficient for what I was trying to do and just reading tutorials and everything as well. I think like the coding project for when I did the interview for this company, I was just reading tutorials of like what other people wrote and managed to get through it, you know, and I think the community like has lots of uh, questions and answers. So that's all just been really helpful for trying to learn. And in addition to obviously my uh, coworkers and everything, whenever I have a question, there's more than enough advice uh, to be given. Yeah, we actually hear that a lot, that the documentation's so great that that's like the only resource that a lot of people need. Um, so that's nice to hear that reaffirmed. Mm -hmm. But so you mentioned something just now. Um, did you do your interview in Elixir while learning it or? Yeah, so the coding project was in Elixir just to see. It was a like a pretty simple sort of thing, but just to see how you handle uh yeah, like working with a new language. So yeah, it was a lot of like a little bit of research to figure out like what I was doing and stumbling through. But um, I think Elixir like looks a little alien at first, but quickly things start looking to make sense, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. We'll definitely have to dive deeper. I think maybe in some other seasons on uh, what interview tactics look like for Elixir, um, because that, I, I don't know if I've heard that one before, maybe other people can... <laughs> attest to different scenarios, but yeah. And looking back on your onboarding process or when you were learning Elixir, is there anything you wish you had or something that might've happened differently to help you learn faster or more in depth? I don't think so. I think, well, for me myself, I'm a very practical learner, so it, it worked really well for me, but maybe if you are, or if you learn better uh, in other ways, it would be nice to like be taken through more things in detail um, with like, or do some pair programming with, uh, people who are already working with Elixir. But yeah, for me personally, I, uh, really liked the way I like took on small tasks and started learning. Nice. So this last question is just for fun. We always like this one. Um, if you weren't a software engineer, what would you be? Uh, I think I would probably like to be a graphic designer. Um, I do like a lot of, uh, vector illustrations and stuff in my free time and have always done a lot of art, but yeah, that's a bit of just like a little side uh, hobby for now. Yeah, absolutely. I also like doing, well, I mostly make emojis. Uh, oh, yeah, that's our fun. Team <laughs> that. But um, yeah, so that's fun. That's always fun to see another uh, graphic design slash artist kind of out there. So awesome. Well, thank you again to Michelle Mori for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, if you or your company are using Elixir in an interesting way and want to come on the show for a mini feature, we'd love to have you. Reach out to us at podcast at smartlogic.io with your name, your company's name, and how you're using Elixir. Brian Howenstein, everybody. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again, Brian, for coming on the show. Thank you to my co-host, Sunday Mint. Thank you to my producer, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir Rails, React infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we can help you with. And don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, so add us on all of those. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on adopting the Elixir.
If you live in the Indianapolis, Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, or Kansas City, Missouri areas, download the Cluster Truck app and use the code ELIXIRWIZARDS at checkout to get 25% off your Cluster Truck order. Good for a single use for both new and returning customers.